0: Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Girl Boss Radio from Panoply. It is me, Sophia Amoruso, the founder of Nasty Gal, the founder of Girl Boss, the author of Girl Boss, the author of Nasty Galaxy, and. Well, we're putting something on called the Girl Boss Rally, which you can find out more about at girlboss.com/rally. We have close to fifty speakers confirmed, including just in the founder of Instagram, Kevin Systrom, and a lot of women. Um, the Girl Boss Rally will be on March fourth, twenty seventeen, in Los Angeles. There are still tickets available. The early bird, well, early nerd tickets—we're calling them—will uh, uh, go off sale January first. So, if you want your discounted ticket, get it now. The holidays are a good time for to ask for things like that. At this event, you'll get the opportunity to meet with like-minded women while developing tips and tricks from some of the best minds of our time. The women who are speaking at this, the founder of Glossier, the founder of Bumble, the founder of Outdoor Voices. And then these baller, baller uh, women who I feel so lucky to call friends will all be there. 500 girls like you, speed networking, pop-up shops, amazing food, and more. Um, so go to girlboss.com slash rally. Um, if you guys don't know anything about Girl Boss Radio, it's an interview podcast. I interview different women who I find inspiring. I unpack their stories, start at the beginning with their first job, uh, because I want to know where they got their start. We all have a start, and I think this world really focuses on where people are today and the peaks of their careers, but it's important for the rest of us who are trying to figure it out to know that at one point, the people we admire and the people who are achieving things that we admire, we're figuring it out, too. We have a new segment on the show called Girl Boss Hotline. Before we get started, I want to talk about it. You can call 1-844-GirlBoss and ask any life-related question. I may or may not be qualified to answer it, but I will answer it. Um 1-844-GirlBoss. You'll hear me at the prompt. You'll leave a short question with your name, and I will get back to you on this podcast. We'll we'll play your recording on the podcast. So send me all the questions you have about being a girl boss, questions like asking for a raise, work attire, taking time off, relationships. I might be qualified. Whatever it is about being the boss of your life, I want to help you get there because I'm trying to get there too. I want to hear from you and I want to know what you're thinking about. That's one 844 boss. Today's question is from Sarah on Work-Life Balance. Here is Sarah's question.
1: Hi, Sophia. I just had a question for you. My name is Sarah, and I'm a huge fan of the podcast and your books. Um, But I'm calling because I had a question about balancing work and personal life. Um, I have a small business, which is an Etsy store where I sell clothes that are all handmade by me, and I'm in the process of trying to grow it. Um, The business is my baby, and it definitely keeps me really busy, and I run it out of my house. If it were up to me, I would work nonstop because there's always more to do, and I just really love doing the work, and I'm happy to do it. However, I just moved in with my best friend and I can feel that my working so much is putting a strain on our friendship because he wants to hang out and I have to say no a lot, which makes me feel pretty guilty for ditching him. When I do decide to stop writing emails or sewing or whatever it is I'm doing to hang out, I feel stressed out that I'm shirking my duties for the business. Also, on a deeper level, because he has a regular 9-to-5 job working for someone else for the first time, we're having trouble relating to each other because he doesn't get why I'm so committed to my work. I was just wondering if you had any advice for how to navigate this situation. Thank you so much.
0: Sarah, great question. I think this is something that we all encounter as we begin to enter what is called adulthood. And you can only hope that you have things that are so important to you that you struggle to you know, to balance all of those priorities. And that's something that I've lived with for quite a while now and happened pretty early for me. I feel an unending amount of social debt to my friends, my family, in my relationships, everywhere with my employees. There's never enough time for everyone. And that's just the name of the game. I think you have to be really aware of that. And you have to make sure that you carve time out for people. But the days of freewheeling and being available all the time and going to the dive bar and, you know, dropping everything to to go away for a weekend, that becomes nearly impossible. As you have more responsibility, and that's a good thing. You just have to find ways to take a weekend out for yourself. You got to plan it. You got to plan to take trips with your friends so you can have really solid time with them. My friendships really don't grow unless I have more time than just a brunch to catch up. It's that's so superficial, and so I try to I try to travel with my friends where I can, even if it's just a le- weekend road trip, and you're staying in a cheap motel or going on a drive for the day, or driving to the beach, or driving to the desert. Anything that's not just like, you know, hey, let's sit in front of each other for 45 minutes and eat some food. Um, it's important to do periodically, but if you really want to nurture your friendships, you got to take more time than that. I would say if this is actually your friend and not a boyfriend, you shouldn't feel guilty. You're roommates, you're not lovers, he, you don't owe him anything. You're doing your part as a roommate and as a human by building an important, valuable life for yourself and having things that matter outside of the world of of social relationships and you're building a future for yourself that someday you'll be able to cash in on and afford more of the life that you dream of or haven't even dreamt up yet. But what you are doing today is giving yourself options by putting yourself in a position to have choices. And that's the most empowering thing that anyone can do for them, for themselves. So, bravo to you. It's a struggle. It's a struggle for everyone. No one has it figured out. And don't expect this to go away. It's just something that changes over time, depending on who your friends are, uh, who you're in relationships with, and you know. It sounds like you don't have a lot of. Strings attached right now, Now is the time to go, 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 because it becomes harder as you have a family, as you have committed relationships, as you have a mortgage, it just becomes more. I know that doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but the, the value of those things that you nurture in your life, uh, that become important to you, that become your life, have so much value, even if they require a ton of work and sacrifice. Best of luck to you, Sarah. Um, Today's guest is Amel Mansoor. Amel is the executive creative director at Vice Media, the world's leading youth media brand and content creation studio. At Vice, Amel has led project and content development across ID and Noisy, Vice's fashion, cultural, and music channels, as well as a variety of branded campaigns that live off-channel. As creative director of Broadly, Amel oversees the art, design, and visual branding identity of the channels and video content output – Amel's background is at the intersection of fashion, music, and news as she previously served as the creative director for Prince. Yeah, Prince. that Prince. I saw it on her LinkedIn, and I didn't really quite understand the first time um, Prince is on her resume. Um, I'm so glad Amel could join us here in our Brooklyn studios today, Hey, Amel. Thanks for joining me on Girl Boss Radio. Hey, Sophia. <laughs> I'm having a good time already. We met, what, a few weeks ago I know, at a conference, and but it was I kind of lost you. I know, I but
2: it was, <laughs> it was buddies at first sight, though.
0: It was buddies at first sight.
2: I don't even remember. I, you could just kind of nuzzle up next to me, and I was like, hey, I know, and then friend. we were um, – I think we were being the litmus for each other, and we're like, are we at a cult gathering, yeah. <laughs> or, oh, no, there's a lot of enlightenment here. This is great.
0: Okay, so I start this episode with the same question, which is, Mel, what was your first job?
2: My first job was BTI telecommunications. It was my dad's business. And I was 15 or 16. I was in high school. And my dad is a lawyer by trade, but never practiced fully as a lawyer and was very much business oriented and business driven and very entrepreneurial, but also an academic at heart. So he acquires this telecommunications company and realizes that he has to build his, or I would say, customer base from the ground up. And he's such a people person, and he's so charming. So his whole thing was essentially picking up the phone and cold calling people and connecting with them emotionally, and then having them go out and spread the word. The first official Ponzi scheme, if that's really what it is. Um, How did he connect with them emotionally? And did you end up doing that? Were you a telemarketer? So he was um, I definitely wasn't a telemarketer. He tasked me with understanding how we could promote and market the brand and how we could differentiate ourselves from other telecommunications companies. And so he would call his friends and then they would connect him to people and he would find something really nuanced in why they like to call home. Mm um and who they were calling when they were calling the middle east or when they were calling africa or south asia and they'd be like oh what's your relationship like with them and 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 oh i know a little something about your culture and tell me this and it became a very personal very human instinct driven building of community through customer service and that was the first time i learned what customer service was like and why it was so important he was super patient his eq was really high so my mm. expectations for every other job was like oh you have to work with people who are really emotionally intelligent and understand like self awareness and how to connect with people and read the room and i couldn't even really plagiarize someone else's marketing plan because i couldn't get to it
0: mm-hmm. so i just came up with yeah you can like google that's it's like you can google everything now
2: Yeah. I mean, what did Steve Jobs say? That creativity is basically like a derivative of every other good idea out there and you just make it better. Um, He said it in a much more articulate way.
0: Yeah, I forget what it was. It was like, there's no reason why you can't do what everyone else is doing but better.
2: Yeah. No, okay. for Neither sure.
0: Neither of us. I, I thought I thought I was going to get it right um, or better. But together, I don't I think, think I did.
2: So either we can assemble something. We're sentence. on to
0: something. We're 1% of Steve Jobs just between the two of
2: us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we equal his pinky. So so it was um strategic and it was, you know, he needed a lot of support, so we got on board. And then I probably quit and, you know, let him down. After Aww. that, yeah, that's OK. It's
0: good. It's probably good that you got, you know, some other jobs after that, which I want to talk about. Um, so you studied entrepreneurship and public health. Yes. But your interest was fashion. So
2: when you graduated, did you go into fashion? What did you know? So I stayed in um, there was this a bit like tangential passion of mine where I was really interested in the health space and interested in essentially almost I had this like third culture guilt, third Culture kid guilt of being in the U.S. and not leveraging the resources that I had for education and um, the access that I had to specific spaces and understanding different um, industries and not take it back and and be in service to the culture and country that I didn't grow up in but very much identified with. So I had this idea and this dream every time I would go back for, to Sudan during the summer, like, oh, I'm going to come back. And make sure that people use the proper sanitation um, methods when they're drawing blood, because this is a really bad way that people have to suffer. And, you know, they just need training and they just need uh, preemptive education around specific things. And everyone just, you know, makes third world fend for themselves. So I got on this mission of how would I best serve my country where I came from as much as it wasn't necessarily the only passion that I had so I wanted to just have an understanding of public health so I got a degree in public health as well Um, but then I had a really interesting professor his name was Steven Notaro and he's like listen kid at the time uh, you know there's a lot of bureaucracy here and there's a lot of red tape and there are a lot of stakeholders who don't necessarily want to see things change so I don't want you to just get stuck in the mud You know, and he had like a Ph.D. in public health and Mm I was like, I'm going to go to the end and I'm going to save the world. And, you know, when you're (laughs) super green and bushy tailed and really naive. um, And he's like, listen, you got to figure out how to do that with other ways. So whether that's through a platform um, and bringing attention to something, this is a little appendix footnote. This is when I first understood that media could be powerful. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, well, that's sad. I just wasted time. He's like, no, you didn't waste time. So I decided, well, I need to be able, my six months will kick in sooner than later for having to start paying my loans back. And everyone in the business school is like really endeavoring to get a job. So I guess that's what I have to do. So um, I went to Minneapolis. I was recruited by, did you ever hear of this department store called um, Marshall Fields? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So Marshall Field ended up turning into Macy's. Macy's bought them. But Marshall Field was this like hallmark legacy institution in Chicago. And um, they were recruiting, recruiting for a junior buyer position. Hmm. And um, it's like, oh, what? So you like just go to showrooms and pick things? I can do that, and so I was like, you know, I'm going to be a buyer. That's what I'm going to be. So I went to Minneapolis because Macy's headquarters or Marshall Field's headquarters was, um, were in Macy, uh, Minneapolis, which was an hour flight from Chicago. And I land, and it's like a full day interview. You do panels, you meet with all these people. That night, I went to a fondue restaurant, and <laughs> I've never even heard of that. Oh, they exist. OK, basically, you can dip everything. So mm-hmm. um, coming out of the fondue restaurant, I was with my roommate at the time. There was this like cool girl standing outside and she had all these tattoos and she looked like she just, um, you know, had had vibes. And so she, we started talking and she's like, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I came into town for an interview and um, I hated it. And everything felt really stiff and everybody was wearing really ugly plaid and not in a really great like holiday ironic time way but it was just like i felt so uninspired in there she said you know what i work for target and i'm a buyer at target and i think that you would actually like target better and i was like we're getting recruited on the spot so I wow yeah and so she invited uh, she'd like put things in motion, and I came back for an interview. I did more ra- interview rounds, and then eventually I was in the what would be considered their incoming freshman class of junior business analyst slash um, on the pathway to be a buyer. Um. So yeah, that killed me on the inside slowly for the next two hmm. years. <laughs> um, wow, two years. Yeah, cool. I did a year. Time. I did a year in Minneapolis, and then maybe a year and a half in. Um, New York. And yeah, what was the job? It was an analyst? Yeah, so it was business analyst. So what I was doing was running a department and understanding, managing the relationships with all of the international vendors, which is such good exposure of how to work with international teams and like cultural sensitivities. And you're 21 and you're managing like purchase orders that are over a million dollars and you're making recommendations about specific SKUs and, the, you know, for anyone listening, SKUs are like the item that you ha- mm-hmm, see on the shelf mm-hmm. um, or you see in Stop online. unit, I think that's what it means. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Oh. Or Do you work in a retail or something? Yeah, I did once. Okay. So... It was a big job and it was, you know, the, the the really great thing about what I learned from working for a corporation in a big box. And at that time, despite being so in my mind, what I considered to be uninspired, but I was it was because I was being ungrateful is um, the importance of training and leadership, the importance of like communication, the importance of being able to see your pathway and uh, collaboration. It's where I learned the word cross-functional noted Mm -hmm. and how do you talk to other teams and it was because it was so regimented and they'd been through this like spin cycle of putting things into place um it wasn't haphazard so it was very secure and i think for someone who is a creative or floating around you need to be anchored and pinned down sometimes in a way that is counterintuitive to who you are in order Mm -hmm. for you to sharpen those skills because i would have been useless i would have been useless if i'm like oh put this sweater with this and how does this work? It's like, no, you have to think about how something becomes an experience or becomes transactional or is, is real. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the best thing ever, ever, ever was building a business foundation in order to support like a, a dream or a vision or a passion, the fundamentals of 101. So um, it was really hard for me to live in Minneapolis and I was tired of being this like token brown girl um and having to speak for all black people so i was like maybe i should move to a city with more black people um so there was a job opening that my friend at work told me about she's like hey your job is actually in a more interesting shape um is open in new york and do you want to do you want to move to new york so i was like why not so i went and interviewed i had to convince. Um, my first hardcore negotiation had to be with um, my boss and his boss as to why they should advocate for me to get that position. Although it was like, although it was an internal position, you still have to interview for those things and and kind of position yourself. So um, I I had decided, although it was like semi bluff or whatever, that I had been checked out and I was underserving the job but I was ultimately underserving and un, you know, not servicing myself and at that time it was I had the privilege of hey I can go back home to my parents house I'm 22 now and so I decided if I don't get the New York job or the opportunity to interview I'm I'm quitting so I went in with this like re- newfound confidence and newfound energy and i was like looking him straight in the eye and i said yeah here's the thing it's called options yeah, yeah. for sure and the option i mean to go back to my parents house wasn't ideal cuz i didn't want to let them down but it also was fine um and so i just went in and i laid it down and he's like whoa okay um, and I got the opportunity. So, and then I went to New York and started working on sourcing programs and products for other brands. So it was almost like an agency offering that Target provided for other brands that didn't have as robust um, an oh, that's infrastructure. Yeah. And so I started going like to supply Asia. Supply chain. Mm, exactly. So, yeah. You know, like all of these um, sourcing companies where you go to and you're like, help me identify the showrooms and, and factories where I can get the best quality based on this you know, landing cost and the way I want to display it and how many seasons can it last. So it it was an introduction into a, the, sp- the world of manufacturing and the way that we work with um, other countries to provide manufacturing. Labor was really interesting. So I started traveling all over the world um, on someone else's dime and getting exposure to the way that brands are built. At what point did you
0: realize it was time to move on from oh, Target yes. and... Yes. Um. How did you get into the creative,
2: you know, squarely, you know, being a fashion creative? So which has become it, um, your- there are always these things that happen where you get a window into something else. And I think it was about being awake. So I got laid off from that job in 2008. And okay. it was right at the precipice of the financial crisis. And so eventually, I think, it, I, I think... That whole division was shuttered about six to eight months later. But I was one of the first, you know, collateral damage to go. And mm. it was timely because I was, again, I had reached this point where I expired and been like, Ugh, kill me now. I don't get to do the fun <laughs> stuff all the time. Um, and I would call my mom daily. And then um, it was one of those places where I just felt I was stifled and couldn't express myself. So, so first world and so, you know, like fun stuff
0: all the time. I wish I had that job. And I'm going to (laughs) ask you later when we get into what you're up to now, if you get to do fun stuff all the time, because, uh, you know, being in the place in your life where you're like, I want to do fun stuff all the time. That's what the job that I want. And then over the years, life just teaches you that nobody gets nobody gets that job. And I'll be, you know, I'll be surprised if if that's. Actually, what you do, but I think we all end up doing things that we find unfavorable. So, so getting laid off was an opportunity for you to move into the career that you had kind of secretly always wanted, but didn't hadn't really found a way to get into. So, you know, how did you how did you segue from you know having the what seemed like the security of working at a place like Target and getting involved with styling into
2: into uh, the next, the next act for you. Yeah. So I thought I would curate my life, and I would do only the best parts of the past experience that I've had, and just just make that reoccurring and and duplicate that every single time or replicate that every time. So I had a friend who was working really hard to get into music when we were in college and he went to college in Queens. So um, he was going on tour and during college, he was really stylishly inclined. And then I think he became so obsessed with like producing his music and, and getting put on that he neglected his appearance or it just became so secondary, maybe even like tertiary. And so I went to him and I said, Hey, you're going on tour. Let me style you. I'll do it for free. And mm-hmm. I will get you enough clothes so that you don't have to do laundry for at least or I'll put together enough looks so that you don't have to do laundry for at least three weeks. Um, and I'll pack it up and I'll make, you know, we'll take photos of you and all of them so you know how to wear everything, et cetera. And I just started to Google how do you source clothes and how do you source product placement? Um. Mm-hmm. And started to send cold emails to a lot of streetwear brands, which I knew was almost like a reciprocal value. I'm like, what am I offering them? I'm offering them visibility. I'm offering mm-hmm. them this. Um, and I essentially like t- crafted my pitch. It's like, hi, I'm working with this person and he's up and coming and he's been covered by this, this and this. And it would be a really great opportunity to collaborate. It wasn't, can you give me? And I worked and reworked this like draft of of this email and I customized it per person like hey it's great I just saw this and then began to just blast it out and I think I got maybe 10 to 15 brands to respond back nice. and I filled my Harlem apartment I lived on 110th street and mm-hmm. it was a one bedroom and it, the, I couldn't see the floor from all of the um Streetwear Sounds t-shirts. very familiar, <laughs> very familiar and di- and, a little bit different, mm-hmm. different product. But, yeah. And then I started to um, build looks and then I felt really confident about uh, offering my services and then getting the experience. But I was living off unemployment and I knew that I needed a mentor or someone to teach me more so, I was like, "Look, girl, you're gonna start you're gonna start from scratch. You need to go out and find an internship while you have mm-hmm. unemployment and can at least cover your rent." So I reached out to this kind of major stylist. I sent her an email. Um, I lied. I knew that she had hosted an event, and I went to the event, and it was full, right? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't get in. So I emailed her. A week later, and I was like, hey, I was at your event, but we didn't get to speak. And I had read a transcript of what she'd said, and I was like, I really liked this line. (laughs) And she was like, oh, yes, you know, and just like appealed to her ego. But also just felt more personal because I was like, I would respond if someone's like, you're amazing. I'm like, yeah, you you know, okay. (laughs) you want to work for me? (laughs) Uh So you got the job? Yeah, I got the job. And it was uh, an experience where I learned how not to manage or treat people.
0: Oh, man, I hear about that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah. Um, But so good. So good. And helped build a real solid backbone as to how you efficiently build a styling and kind of personal shopping and all, the, all of the extensions of that specific construct, building that into a real mm-hmm. business. So you started your styling business and who were your clients? Obviously the,
0: the first guy um, that you send these emails to, but you know, how did you, how did you build your, your client list and um, at its peak,
2: you know, who were you working with? So my first client was J Cole, and he's amazing, a, mu- a musician and a great person. And my last client was Prince and his band, the okay. NPG. Okay, that's insane! Like, we were—I
0: was like getting ready for this podcast, and I know I added you on LinkedIn after I met you, and I—I'm sure I looked glanced at like your, you know, background. I know I did. And when you see the name Prince on a LinkedIn profile, you just assume it's like the name of a company or something. I don't know. Just somehow it just didn't register until right before we got on this, on this podcast or this like phone call without telephones, basically. That's like a dream
2: client. What was it like dressing an icon? Yeah. So, I mean, so on a J. Cole video shoot, I met someone named Atiba Newsom, who is like my brother for life. And Atiba was styling the other musician because it was a duet. And um, Atiba said, look, I have a client that I've been working with, but he doesn't prefer. I, I don't think we're vibing. I think he prefers to work with women. And do you mind essentially being my front of house, like being my ambassador and just getting this job closed out? Because I think it's a quick in and out personal shopping gig. I don't think there's really any creative direction or styling or opportunity beyond that. I was like, yeah, no problem. I'm happy to do it. And Atiba was so gracious and kind towards me. And it was a really refreshing um, personality type in fashion. So I'd worked from like the editorial side where everyone's like super stiff. And then I'd work in music where everyone was... You know, we're like basically trying to uh, redeem themselves from their high school selves. So it was really bad. And then like everything in between. So he was so nurturing. And I said, "Okay." so we go and he's like, it's for Prince. And I said, oh, cool, Prince, the musician. Didn't feel anything. I didn't feel a tingle. I didn't feel not. I didn't feel anything. And we begin to build the presentation for what we think he wants to see. Um, And Atiba has really good taste and Prince has exquisite taste. Hmm. Um, And we roll in to, I believe it was MSG because the first time I ever worked with him was he had just begun uh, a a residency there. And we roll in, excuse me. And there was, it's again, one of those things where you don't know. It's like, well, that's fine. I mean, if I don't get this gig again or if I don't work with him again, I have other work. So this whole audacity of walking in and saying, okay, here's, let me walk you through it. Because what he was comfortable doing, Prince, was actually going through the rack himself
1: mm-hmm. and
2: and sor- sorting yes and no. And I was like, no, no, no. And I'm like, trying to sell him on this like furry coat. <laughs> and he's like, no, why? I said, let's talk about it. So I think he maybe had been laughing at me before. <laughs> been like who is this crazy person coming in here and be like let me tell you prince how to dress <laughs> um and but we finished that gig and then he asked atiba if he would bring me back for um another one and so we did that twi- twice and then on the second one i had i ended up going home and like devouring all of these prince videos and looking at what his recent performances looked like and what does the NPG look like because they've been his band and essentially his mm-hmm. partners in crime for so long. I'm like, oh, it's an ensemble. And some of it, I mean, his keyboardist has been with him for 20 years. And it just was so much legacy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I walked in and I, I had an idea of what I was going to say, but then it just sounds so much more smooth in your head. And I was like, you're banned looks bad and he's like what i'm like your band i'm like why do you look so incredible and your band looks bad and he's like well you think you can do better and i'm like of course i can in my mind i'm like what are you gonna do and Mm -hmm. uh he said okay well tomorrow we have a show so make the band look better and he's like and you can't and you can't ask for help So he was like, don't bring Atiba back and don't ask my team for any help. So I went out and I, with his manager, asked for the contact information for the band. And I met with them. I went to each of their hotel rooms and I was like, tell me what you want to feel like on stage. And I could tell that they didn't feel their best, you know, and he looked incredible and could dance in anything. And that falsetto you know Mm -hmm. it was just like those hips forever those (laughs) hips yeah and so i presented them with a look that felt cohesive and i told him i was like this is creative direction this is not styling this is costume design um and we worked with a really really great uh, i mean fast forward so he's like okay then can you do this for the rest of the tour and i was like i can um And so that was the first tour. The second tour, it was, I I wanted to get more involved with like the lighting team and sound design, not sound design, light design and how, how, because he has, he's so definitive. He was so definitive in his vision um, and it was so forward and visionary. It was, I had to just grasp it in a more human way than, Mm -hmm. than where he was. So essentially um, it was the most challenging, the most rewarding, the most creatively elevated experience I will ever have in my life. Mm -hmm. And he taught me, he taught me, I mean, everything. Um, How long did
0: you work together?
2: I would say under four years. Wow. Yeah.
0: That's a long, that's a long time. That's a long, That's a long relationship for a lot of people in entertainment to have because I know it's like... Uh, in that respect because some there's just they cycle through assistants and stylists and you know it's oh yeah i mean
2: i he sent me home plenty of times mm-hmm. you know if we were beefing about something but he um he'd be like no and i would go home and then i would come back you know in a couple of weeks or a month later so it was a very it was a very back and forth relationship but it's interesting when you consider yourself to be a creative person and then you're met with that type of force Mm -hmm. that type of creative force um and then you're in awe of it all day i had to quiet and essentially minimize my ego to zero Mm -hmm. um but also be able to find my voice all the time i would listen and be like what would my what would my dad think if i you know In this interaction? Or how would he how would he recommend or my mother? How would they recommend to like preserve your dignity, but also have a voice at the table when it comes to vision? And that negotiation tactic that I essentially navigated and learned while with Prince, I apply every single day now, every single day. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, it sounds like you might have learned it in telemarketing even, you know, and then honed it with Prince. Um. And how did you end up at Vice? And tell me about your role at Vice, Executive Creative Director.
2: That's a big title. What is your job today? My job today is about ensuring that Vice and the legacy that Vice has so successfully built um, is supported and carried through but also evolves. And the way I got here was uh, a friend who connected me to another friend who happened to say, my friend Tom Punch um, is building the creative department at Vice and, um, you know, I think you would be a good fit. So I, like, wrote this, uh, wrote this thesis about this musician out of Atlanta at the time. His name was Rory. who He wore this, like, wide-brimmed hat. And I was talking about This whole classification of millennials and what do young people infuse back into the system and how we need to stop looking at young people in a way that they're just commodities. But also, I mean, the world can be changed by someone who's 20 Um, Mm -hmm. and like stop, you know, stop waiting or 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 essentially pacifying people and be like, oh, yeah, when you grow up, because that's how I definitely saw myself like when I grow up. So it was always this kind of disconnect. I'm like, I feel like I should be grown up now, but. I don't think I am. So um, he introduced me to Tom Punch and he uh, I interviewed so many times and he was so Mm. thorough and I was like, wow, this is a big job. And then he has mentored me for the past three years and been the best mentor that I've ever had. And I never thought that a man would be the person that really invested time and energy into my development and given me such sound, sound advice. Nurture. Um, so yeah. yeah, super nurturing and not even in a paternal way, just more in like, I see you. And I think that's all anyone ever wants to feel is to be like, I see you, I hear you, but not right now. Or I see you, I hear you, try it this way. I see you, I yeah. hear you. Totally. It's worth that's it, so you great. know? That's so great. So, I mean, he that's been really, really valuable and I don't think that I would have been able to Uh, bring something valuable to vice without having someone like him help me shape that and I think it's important for anyone to know no matter where you are from entry level um, to you know all the way to the top where you're running your own thing having someone you can just soundboard with or go to and be like I need some guidance is so helpful Mm -hmm. Um, and they come in different shapes and forms and waves and sometimes you can find it in a book and sometimes you will find it on Sophia's podcast. Hi. yeah. Um
0: So tell me about what you what is your role? Like what do you do when you wake up in the morning? Do, what does your team look like? And just you know Vice is such a huge company and you know executive creative director is
2: a big title. What does that mean? Um Well so my job is to make sure that I work with Um, our fantastic head of content, who's a woman. And um, I work, I sit between that team and I sit between the commercial team. And the commercial team and commercial arm is very partnership-driven. So what happens are a lot of companies come to us and say, can you help me develop my campaign? And can you help me make a documentary? Can you help me make a really cool series that really... Uh, extols or leverages the values of my brand. And I'll work with them and my team, which is very small. I love my team. Um, I brag about them all the time. I think it's really, you're only as good as the people around you and the people that you you choose to empower. And every single uh, person on my team is inspiring to me and really sound As human beings and I respect them and so it's a very I would say it mimics the way that I grew up when I as a leader I'm sitting with my team I'm like do you guys have ideas what do you think of this it's a very open forum and so they all work in a way that services we have two clients we service the commercial commercial arm of vice so and we also service vice which is a client of ours and we help them package up really great ideas to go out into the marketplace. We pr- we want to produce really cool events. We want to put together really interesting stories that, that mean something and we're moving away from things being just gratuitous or empty calorie driven and leaning into uh, why does vice exist? And I think in a really despondent time after where everyone feels very despondent after, after the selection is a chance to have a platform be the voice, right, and leverage. And that goes back to the advice that my professor gave me. And he's like, just you." there's another way that you can be a voice to the voiceless or bring a spotlight to something. And Vice has been doing that for so long in such a good way. Um, and, and, and no story is, is small, really. Yeah, you know? it is public health in a certain way. Know, right. For like sure. just maybe. Yeah. I mean, I I, I, I believe that, that. that me media so intentional now.
0: Yeah. It sounds like you found your way there. And in, so in, on some like cosmic level um, without n- necessarily providing needles for people. You know, it's like it's about education and awareness. And um, I do think that that's how the world how the world changes and how perception changes and how you know people are educated and i think media is an incredibly powerful thing it's a huge responsibility and um it's a really fascinating thing to have any role of influence over
2: yeah which is you're right about responsibility for sure yeah and as you can tell now i think in every climate you understand the how potent media can be and how how it can heal and rehabilitate something, but it can also very much be poisonous and how we, and then we're moving towards this thing. I talk about with Tom all the time is um, selective media and how we're choosing to engage with things based on what we think. So I will actually never ever have to hear an opposing point of view if I don't have to, and I can curate every single medium and exposure of mine into media to my liking. Which is dangerous too. So it me- it needs to be far reaching media, and it needs to be accessible. And Vice has been free. Um, I started as a free zine in Montreal, so I really really love that part of the DNA, saying it's you know it's for everyone. But just to put a pin in it, because I think it's really such an ambiguous title. But what creative directors do, and what I do with my team, um, is we think of ideas. We solve uh, brand problems and campaign challenges and storytelling challenges with these concepts and ideas. And then we make them. It's fun. Yeah. It's fun
0: stuff. It's fun, fun thinking. I've never officially had that job, but something that. I more don't know. You I definitely plan the vision.
2: Doing. You very much of yeah. direct um the brands you are associated Thanks. with. For sure. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks.
0: I never went to college, but I think I might I might get something. So I, there's a question that I ask every one of our guests on this podcast and it was it's what is the what was your girl boss moment of the last week? And so a girl boss moment is kind of a cheesy name, but it's just somehow where we landed. And it's a moment in your week where you felt like you were in charge of your life. You were owning your life. You weren't being run by your calendar or your own commitments that there was a a slice of life that where you felt like, all right, I'm doing this for me. This is is mine.
2: It was on Sunday. And I think it was because I felt so in control because I was fully prepared for my week. Rather than uh doing this kind of metaphorical weeping of, oh my week is gonna be so tough. I prepared and then I felt like magic on Monday. I cooked my food for the week. I went nice. to the gym on Sunday. I started reading a book that I've been putting off, the Zadie Smith book that oh. I've been wanting to read for a long time. I drafted the emails that I would usually have to do super early before I went into work. I mean I, for some reason, I was on one, but then I realized how. I mean, I'm like I'm official today, and I felt very much in control. But I think it was about really giving myself the time to do what I needed to do, um, rather than trying to fit in social time or,
1: yeah. or,
2: or or essentially just veg out. And and for me, that very much put me on a different foot. Um, and I felt like I could actually handle any random stuff that came through. Totally. So that was it. And I was so much nicer on Monday. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. You go to like water yourself, like you
0: water your plants. You know, I think that's, I know.
2: And so far time. I haven't like, I've kept my succulent alive for so long and I'm so proud. Of
0: <laughs> Amel, thank you so much for coming on Girlboss Radio. This has been a pleasure.
2: It was really fun to talk to you.
0: And now for some girl boss moments. A girl boss moment is a time in your week when you feel like you're in control of your life. That could mean getting home for the holidays, having a good year-end review or saving money for retirement. Whatever it is to you, it's that time that we eke out of even our own commitments, even out of the freedom that we've engineered into our own lives to stop and say, I did this whatever it is to you you can send in your girl boss moment with hashtag girl moment on twitter or instagram we read them on the podcast and pick our favorite girl boss moment each week and publish it on girlboss.com where we're publishing lots of amazing content uh weekly kimberly Corneliuson at kk Corneliuson, we have a very active relationship on twitter took at sophia amaruso advice bought a jumpsuit will probably never take off slash get a date again totally okay with that yeah i wore mine yesterday and and I went on a date in it, actually. So there's hope for you. Laura Elizabeth at Laura Elizabeth M. Got a great evaluation at work and registered for my first MBA classes at, at Angelo State. Amazing. Congratulations. Haley Liebson at Haley Liebson. Over the moon excited to commit to my dream of competing in an Ironman 70.3 race this spring. Kellen Winters at underscore. It's Kells. I effectively saved her company thousands today all before lunch. Wow. Sounds like a bonus for you. Lou Ramsey at Louise Ramsey underscore emails through my lunch hour and then back on to studying before a mega work shift. This girl is taking no prisoners today. Florella at Florella says hashtag girl moment of the week negotiating the salary I want and officially accepting an awesome new job. Same company brand new role. Amazing strong powerful emojis. My girl boss moment. Oh man. I would say my girl boss moment is pushing the girl boss rally live and selling out over 25% of it in the first week. It's, um, it's a really scary thing to keep putting yourself out there after some public snafus and, you know, the ups and downs of, of running a company as I have over the last decade with, with Nasty Gal. And so, you know, immediately putting yourself back out there and trying to build something is a really scary thing. I guess I'm proud of myself for that. And um, have gotten together some just dozens of incredible women to speak at this event and and building Girl Boss, which was once just a book, is now a podcast and will be a Netflix series and is something that is real. Um, there's a few employees at this thing called Girl Boss. Um, I know it might sound like there's a whole lot, but there's not. It's me and a few really awesome girls working really hard behind the scenes um, to build something out of this movement that you guys, have started and run with i'd say that's my girl boss moment all right that was another episode of girl boss radio we'll be back next week so please tune in our producer is shara morris thank you also to odelia rubin Kristen meinzer laura mayer and andy bowers at panoply to stay in touch with all things girl boss please follow us on instagram facebook and twitter at girl boss you can sign up for our newsletter girl boss diary by going to girlboss.com and you can also find lots of great exclusive content at girlboss.com and follow me at sofia maruso anywhere social media is found i hope Girlboss boss radio helps you to achieve your goals or at the very least provide some amount of inspiration thank you for listening help us achieve our goals we're every every week we're battling it out on the itunes charts trying to inch up just a little bit further please subscribe to our podcast in itunes and share your love on social media Thank you to the band Phases for our theme song. And thanks to Galen for recording part of this podcast. I love you. All right, I'll talk to you next week, guys. Bye.